Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's programme we'll be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss but first and foremost I'm delighted to be alongside Isabel Lochran, the CEO of Footprints. Footprints is an organisation in Belfast which delivers a multitude of community services, including daycare, childcare, women and family support and crisis intervention, among others. Um, Isabel, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much, Scott, for inviting me um, to take part in this today. My pleasure, Isabel. And um, the reason we're here, of course, is to establish your take on leadership, among other things. But before we delve into that side of the conversation, considering that today's generation of leaders, I think it's fair to say, is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time in the shape of COVID-19, it would be remiss of me not to ask you just how much that pandemic has affected you, Footprints, and your operations at the moment. Scott, I'm sure like every other individual, every organisation, every business in the world, it has probably been the most stressful time um, we have ever experienced because you're you're not only dealing with your business, you're dealing with all of the services that are um, still needed, especially as a community organisation delivering essential services, and also with the staff as well um, and ensuring that their health and wellbeing is supported um, while those services um, are are um, kept, um, you know, kept uh, uh, that they are still effective and and, and still going, you know. Um, so it, it was an extremely different, difficult time in making sure that both the people that we work with were safe in what we're doing, and our staff um, were safe in in completing those services as well. And I can imagine from a mental health and well-being perspective, that's been very much at the forefront of your thoughts throughout this entire period, because not only are you working with vulnerable individuals who are suffering from social isolation as a result of the uh, the lockdown period, but also you'll have a lot of concerned staff as well who will be worried for their safety, of course, um, the um, sort of safety of their uh, careers going forward. So it's been a very difficult time, I can imagine, from that point of view. It, it's that balancing act. Uh you know, at the very start, I, I remember, I think it was Wednesday, the 27th of March, uh, we we had to, we, we decided then because of the impact of COVID to close our daycare, which is a community service um, and, and the largest community daycare facility that both our staff and women use. And it was devastating. So it was a heartfelt blow, but one that we knew we, we needed. And our management team at that time, um, saying, you know, what, what do we do? You know, you're not prepared for this. No amount of planning or training um, is ever going to prepare you for this type of crisis. And sitting down and looking and saying, well, we know what we can do. We know that um, we cannot continue our training face-to-face. We know we cannot continue our daycare. Um, we know that people cannot come in um, and use our social supermarket. But what we can we do? And we had then... We, we looked at a plan to to move forward, you know, in in something that we could do, um, that we had the capacity to do, and something that we could sustain um, over the next few months at least. 
And that was looking at, first of all, immediate needs, which was there were families still there in need and we could supply food support. So we had an outreach team that had... Um, that we we have a, a a delivery van, and we work with for sure the charity that um, takes uh, food that is still um, in date and would otherwise go to landfill, and they they were working with us and delivering those food to us, so we were able to deliver that out to homes within the community with our outreach team as people were not able to come to us. We also had a baby bank and that is stored with nappies and wipes and people could knock it out. And so we were able to bring those to families as well. So we were really, really delighted. So we concentrated on what we were doing and making sure that that was risk assessed. We also had to look at the immediate um, safeness of our organisation um, and bringing in, you know, making sure that we had uh, risk assessments that the staff were part of carrying out to make sure that they felt safe as well. That met our, our funders and our legislative requirements and um, that people that we were delivering to felt safe as well. So it was a great way to keep that engagement up. We also set up meetings here with Footprints and other community leaders to make sure that the work wasn't duplicated and that everybody, uh, what everyone was doing, was try was as effective as possible. And we also set up um, training for our staff. We brought in um, a, a specialist in... Um, and technology, and, and I'm such a technophobe, to, to take both ourselves and our staff through Zoom meetings and and social media and best ways to engage, so really to bring us up to date enough that we could have that continued engagement with our um, the, the, the members, but in a, a, a different format. And of course, it's been predicted that as we emerge from the lockdown, there will be a spike in the demand for services such as those that you do provide. Have you already begun to see that coming to fruition or is that something that might be on the horizon still? Um, absolutely. We, we, you know, someone, we, we, I was at a meeting with Women's Aid recently and they talked about um, a tsunami that is coming um, in terms of domestic violence incidents being reported and you can imagine being locked up with the perpetrator in a home and unable even to use your phone um, to, to phone it. So there's there's a lot of trauma. The families that we work with would have issues around food poverty, domestic violence, poor mental health and those are just magnified now over this last few months. So what we do, and we do best within the community, is being innovative. This centre is has existed now, it'll be 30 years next year, and we're the largest community employer in the area. We are Our board is managed by, in the majority, uh, local women from the community, and also our our, our staff are our local women that... Um, again, have been supported and, and developed through the employment that we offer here. So it's a very innovative organisation that has always led the ways in in, in dealing with um, 
crises and, 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 and symptoms and issues in um, in the community and wider society. So COVID is is another issue that our crisis that has came along. Um, we have dealt with this in a very innovative way. We've taken what we can do and provided um, services that were essential to the health and well-being of participants in our community. Through our shop, we were able to target 200 individuals every single week in providing food support for the families. And that included a lot of newcomer families. There's a lot of Syrian families that have come to the area. And we also looked at what the barriers were, which included language and, and, and continued online language classes for those families. And can you imagine being in a community and having all of these COVID, but also language being another barrier, having newly came to the community. So we tried to look at all of the issues and, and I, I suppose, be as effective impossible, as possible in um, our, our lowered capacity because not all our staff were, were, were back um, for a variety of reasons. And also making sure our staff felt, felt supported as well. That that was in risk assessment and 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 um, you know personal protection and also health and wellbeing access to wealth health and wellbeing programs um, as well so that they felt safe coming into the centre um, and that the, the the participants that they were working with felt safe in engaging with them as well. And if we just shift the focus of the discussion on to talk about leadership just a little bit more broadly, um, Isabel, now, um, as a leader, if you will, in your line of work, what is it that you would say inspires and motivates you every day? Um, I, the working in an organisation that you can actually see the 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 effectiveness and um, of, of the work that you do is very rewarding. It is a very challenging position and that is what motivates me. If it doesn't motivate you being in a position working in the heart of your local community and the challenge to bring, you could not do the job because you have to be motivated by what you do. I love the fact that as an organisation, we, as a group of local women, built up the largest community organisation within the community and are constantly rewarded with that. We have staff within the organisation, including myself, that has come through university access courses and went on to university and come back um, and and use that leadership um expertise in delivering within the centres that they were supported to access that. We have teachers in our local community, again, that has come through our training and education and staff within the centre that came here with their children and again accessed our training programmes and the childcare and the support. And that is extremely motivational to work with staff that come through an organisation that you can see visibly is successful. We have teachers in our local school, again, that have come through our education programmes. We have awards. I, myself, just last year um, received a, an award for innovation. 
I believe that there's not many there's not many other places I would have been given the opportunity to um, just let's say uh, be able to develop and deliver that innovation because there are challenges there and because of the nature of the limited resources and my passion in 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 in, in been able to uh, meet that need has stretched me in what I do. Mm. Um, the staff that I have around me, the commitment that I see in them, um, certainly inspires me every single day in working in very challenging and in, in dealing with very challenging issues. And within the centre, I think that that, that common values um, is a driver and the, the staff that we have received many awards are our social supermarket and and the outreach team which were able to go out and deliver that most that much needed essential food and engagement um, w- with with families um, within the community we were the first social supermarket to open in Northern Ireland and we knew that food poverty was an issue. We knew that there was a lot of food wasted, and we had poverty when, the commu- when we come into the community. Uh, sorry, within the community. So we looked at those two issues and um, set up um, on a very small base our our social supermarket, um, which has now been used as a model within our government here in Northern Ireland to set what one up in every single council. So, if there's the passion, if there's the commitment. Um, I believed out of that um, grows good leadership. And thinking now about the next 12 to 18 months as we sort of move through the COVID-19 situation, and hopefully shake off the shackles of the pandemic. We know that during this time, we're going to have to be used to a new way of living and working until that time comes. But during that period, Isabel, what do you think is next for Footprints and what are you really hoping to achieve? Um, I've just come out of a staff meeting with our management and this is one of the issues that we're looking with. There will be, at the moment, our daycare, like every other daycare um, in Northern Ireland and the UK is experiencing great difficulties because the parents are coming in a lot of times now working. Um, those that are working are working remotely or children are back to school and they are, are, are just not able to commit to childcare because they've either been made redundant, they're working remotely or um, have used school as a backup support and schools are not there and they don't know when, what days their children are coming in. So we have not the demand for childcare at this moment because of the environment that we are working in. So we will have to look at a different way in supporting families and children. So what we are trying to do is to work with other organisations where we have a project with children in need at the moment, BBC Children in Need, who are extremely supportive. And that is where there is a a great spotlight will be shown now in organisations that are working with community organisations last night in their flexibility to adapt. We've always had to adapt, and that's community organisations' success and leadership leaders' success in their ability to adapt and other organisations working with us to support that. Now, we, the, 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 the support is still needed, but needed in a different way. We may now look 
at children at that school age, between five and ten, who have had an absolute traumatic time and not been able to access their friends, um, the homeschooling and demands that they put on their parents, and and been in family situations that may have been um, volatile or not not positive, just let's say, and and look at working with children and adults in terms of health and well-being, and including a support in their parents homeschooling those kids as well, because some parents just don't have that capacity. We're also looking at our business. Now, our social supermarket, um, and we have a social cafe as well. If the people can't come to us, we're looking at a takeaway service at the minute and in looking at families and delivering healthy, nutritious meals to families in their home um, and start to build up that face-to-face work again that people can come in and have meals because we can help people in to have meals. And while they're having... Um, we had yesterday a lovely demonstration on health and nutrition while people ate and um, it was a, it was a very informal, um, lovely atmosphere. So we're having to look at a different way of meeting needs and being able to sustain ourselves as well. But it's what we're good at. But there needs to be other organisations and business and funding organisations like the, the, the Children Need who are so good, the Big National Lottery Fund, they are so good in understanding the flexibility that is needed because what was our environment and our need in March this year is not our need in July this year and may change next month as well. So it's that being able to adapt to meet those ever-changing needs while sustaining yourself. It's a challenge, but we it's how we operate. It's what we have done for the past 20 years and I think community organisations and been a leader in that will cope with that and be one, they'll say, of the rising stars in that. Certainly seems that there's plenty to be getting stuck into over the next uh, few months uh, for sure, Isabel. And let's certainly hope mm-hmm. that there'll be some positive news to share um, on that front over the coming months. And, you know, just given how informative it's been having you joining us on today's programme, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up in future and have you back on the show just to see how those hopes are being borne out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Scott, I would be delighted. I think that there is a lot to be learned from our business leaders but equally, a value needs to be put on our local leaders as well, who are working on a lot of the same issues. Um, and HR-wise, you know, we've had to deal with all of the administration. We have nearly 40 employees, and it has been in the furlough staff an extremely challenging time. Without the support, I have no HR worker in here, you know, so we have a very limited resources. So it does, I suppose... Um, push you to be very innovative and build on your connections as well. So there's a lot of really good stuff and working in the community that is extremely challenging but but a lot of learning as well that I you know that link it up. We we do have a, a an organization here, business in the community that does link us up. Pricewaterhouse Coopers are actually one of our sponsors and they are working with us and have taken us on as one of the key organizations they wish to work with. Um, over the next few years to develop the organisation. So there's a lot of, they, they appreciate the learning that their staff will get in this partnership as well with ourselves. So I think that that's 
a really innovative way of looking for a large organisation like Pride House Pricewaterhouse Coopers. So that partnership, I think um, th- th- there will be great outcomes from that for, for both of the organisations. Certainly so. Um, Isabel, I really, really enjoyed having you were with us this um, afternoon. And most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base again, do take care and stay safe with all okay, still going Scott. on. Thank, thank you so much, Scott. Okay. Bye. It's been Bye. fantastic. Thank you. I was Bye. speaking today to Isabel Lochran, CEO of Footprints. Next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, during his professional career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, he has become the director of cricket for the England and Wales cricket board and done quite a lot of work on the importance of mental health i hope you all enjoy listening just as much as jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with sir andrew and that is of course coming up next hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb sir andrew thank you very much for joining us today real pleasure to be here thank you the pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty 
comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets before, a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual 
competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for absolutely. Uh, uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as Hold a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, 
and you're not doing your but job absolutely um and with, with all that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was always brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh, having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very 
new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I... Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it if you if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, 
I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.